Major support for Louisiana Eats comes from Zatarain's Creole Mustard. Add it to everything, from backyard burgers and hot dogs to potato salad and coleslaw. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Summertime is chock full of holidays that celebrate America. From Memorial Day through the 4th of July and Labor Day, we're red, white, and blue through and through. On this week's show, we're celebrating American food with some of our nation's experts. Sarah Lohman is a self-described historical gastronomist. She explores the eight flavors that contribute to the taste of America. Then, our in-depth look at American food continues with Gabrielle Langholz, author of the encyclopedic America, the Cookbook. And for dessert, what could we serve but American pie? Pikeiatrist Kate McDermott is in the house on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Sarah Lohman. I'm a historical gastronomist, and my first book is Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. As far as Sarah Lohman is concerned, the phrase, as American as apple pie, doesn't begin to cover it. Sarah is a food blogger and historian who delights in digging through recipes from America's past to learn about who we are today. Her latest book, Eight Flavors, uncovers a gastronomic history that goes way beyond apple pie to delve into ingredients as diverse as sriracha and MSG. Intrigued? I was too. Here's Sarah with the eight flavors explored in her book. So it's black pepper, vanilla, chili powder, curry powder, soy sauce, garlic, monosodium glutamate, and sriracha. What you're really telling in the book are the stories of the people behind those ingredients. Tell us about some of the more fascinating characters. Well, that is what I, I really love doing with this book. You know, I do talk about the botany. I do talk about the science behind why we like some of these flavors. But very quickly in my research, I realized that they're all connected to these really unique individuals. And more often than not, they're people that don't normally get written about in the history books. Uh, they are slaves. They are immigrants. They are Mexican-Americans. They are women. Uh, these are the people who have greatly affected our food over time. So we go all the way from the story of Edmund Albius, who was a, a boy, a kid, a slave in uh, Réunion, a colony, a French colony off of Madagascar. And he discovered the way to pollinate vanilla that is still used across the globe today. Vanilla is an orchid. It's native to Mexico. People were desperately in love with this flavor in the 19th century and before. But when it was transported to other countries, it would blossom but not fruit. And he changed the culinary landscape of the planet when he was a young boy. But because he was a slave, even though later he was freed, um, he simply didn't have the same opportunities that someone who was white had 
despite his genius. And he died in poverty. So it's this bittersweet story in that we get to know his name, which is so rare of a black man of that time. But despite his great discovery, his life was sad after this moment. I talk about the Chili Queens of San Antonio. These were, um, I mean, it's it's hard to give them a little. I can say Mexican-American. I can say American-Mexican. They were women who were living in Texas when Texas went from a Mexican state to an American state. Um, and at one time, by the way, Mexico created laws to stop the immigration of Americans into Mexico. So that is something I read about in the book that's important to remember. Um, and these were young women, unmarried, who would make chili with their families and sell it as a tourist attraction in front of the Alamo. Their food was as important to the tourist scene in San Antonio in the late 19th century as they were. They were um, infamous and flirtatious and sort of seductive and magical and in some ways stereotyped, too. And they lasted to the 1940s, uh, through about the 1940s, until modern sort of food laws shut them down. And now with the revival of the food truck industry, um, I shouldn't even say revival, um, immigrants to this country have always used food and mobile food vending as a way to start and begin to gain financial independence in this country. And then my very last chapter is about the Tran family. They are a family of Vietnamese refugees that came after the Vietnam War. And within a year after landing in this country, David Tran started making sriracha hot sauce in Southern California. So this refugee family brought us something that has now become quintessentially American. Tell us about sriracha. Sure. And I think that even looking at the bottle with its symbols in different languages makes it seem a little exotic and and sort of magic that way. Um, But the Tran family had been making hot pepper sauce back in Vietnam uh, based on a style of sauce that originally came from Thailand that Vietnamese people used in their pho. And uh, David Tran told me he landed in Boston in January 1980. Can you imagine coming from Vietnam to Boston in January? And his brother had been placed on the other side of the country. And David told me all he was thinking is, I need to do something to support my family. And he called his brother and said, do they have hot peppers there? And his brother said, yes. And so they got on a plane. And by February, they were making hot sauce. It's made from locally grown uh, red jalapeno peppers, garlic, sugar, salt. And he made it thinking, all right, there'll be Vietnamese people here. They'll want a sauce for their foe. But there is also maybe this like inkling of idea of like what might Americans like? Or maybe I can't call it entirely luck. He's a really genius businessman. But there's something about the sauce. It's not too hot. It's nowhere near as spicy as Tabasco is. It's a little bit sweet. It's hits on a lot of things that Americans like more broadly. The bottle, which David Tran also designed, is really iconic and recognizable. You see it once, you remember it. You see it again, you buy it. And so it's through pho and Vietnamese cuisine that it became a part of American food very, very quickly. Within 20 years, bloggers are writing about it and saying, don't just put it on your uh, pho and don't just put it on your Chinese food. Put it on hot dogs and hamburgers too. An ingredient that has a terrible rap and that people automatically shun is MSG. Yeah, monosodium glutamate. It's true. Tell us about the people behind the MSG and why we really shouldn't be afraid of it. So I'm amazed in a way how much prejudice is still against monosodium glutamate. Um, It was discovered by a Japanese scientist at the turn of the 20th century. So it has been used as a specific ingredient, MSG, for 100 years. 
but he discovered it in kombu dashi, which is a broth made from kelp. Kombu is the Japanese word that is the, has been the backbone of Japanese cuisine for thousands of years. Japanese food, next time you eat it, taste it, think about it, they excel at savory. And that savory comes from um, glutamic acid and sea salt and sodium that is crystallized on the outside of this kombu. Not just there, but it also appears in soy sauce, in miso, and a lot of fermented foods. A lot of those bacteria will ingest sugars or proteins, and a byproduct of that becomes, well, glutamic acid is one of the building blocks of protein. It's in our bodies right now, actually. When glutamic acid crystallizes with sodium, that becomes MSG. People have an inherent fear of chemicals nowadays. A lot of that comes from the 60s and 70s, whereas we used to celebrate science. Um, we dropped the atomic bomb. There was a thalidomide scare. We even started banning things like um, DDT and even some of the fake sugars, too. So after all that happened, then people started turning to MSG. And it became one of the most studied food additives for about 20 years. And a lot of those initial studies had a lot of bias. They didn't test to see if MSG caused physical side effects. They tested in what doses MSG caused physical side effects. And that's a pretty big problem when it comes to an unbiased scientific study. So once someone did an unbiased study, specifically um, having people ingest MSG in pill form as opposed to being able to taste it, they found that there's no difference between a placebo and MSG. It's been proved over multiple studies that it does not have any harmful side effects, but people still have a prejudice against it. That's slowly beginning to change. There's a coterie of chefs and food scientists, bloggers that are speaking out pro-MSG. A lot of them are people who have Southeast Asian heritage, a huge immigrant group of the past 40 years in the United States that's changed our cuisine in many ways. And a lot of people have called that out as xenophobic. The name for the, MS, the side effects of MSG is Chinese restaurant syndrome. Yet MSG is used in brands as broad as Kentucky Fried Chicken and Kraft. But no one says that they get Chinese restaurant syndrome from a Dorito. They say it comes from Chinese fast food. So there are people who, if they're chefs, who if they're not using MSG as this powdered salt, they are using ingredients like miso, kelp, and soy sauce that contain naturally forming MSG. But... It's not just limited to South Asian ingredients. Parmesan cheese is about 2% monosodium glutamate, naturally occurring glutamic acid and sodium. So you get that same savory effect from this completely natural process. That is just fascinating. There's so much misconception in, in the world and certainly in the world of food. Now, while we are talking about amazing immigrants, I had never read about or heard about the history of American vegetarianism. <laughs> now, where does the cabbage cake come in? The cabbage cake. So there's also a fascinating Jewish vegetarian movement that rose out of Eastern Europe and then in America. If you're observantly Jewish, you're keeping kosher and you're separating meat and dairy. And then there was sort of a not quite a sect, but a group of people who broke away and felt that if we weren't eating meat at all, we can be even closer to God. If we're not consuming the spirit of animals, we're just having dairy meals, then that is even more religious. 
So there are a number of cookbooks that come out. Uh, one comes out of Eastern Europe in the 1930s, I believe it's published, um, that has hundreds of vegetarian recipes, including one that I made. I, of course, like to pick some of the weirdest ones. And one was cabbage cake, which actually didn't end up as strange as it sounds. It was a savory cake where you cook the cabbage with butter and onions and then put it between two layers of yeast bread. And it was a pretty, pretty delicious um, side or even a main course, too. Um, but that led to other vegetarian cookbooks come out or Jewish cookbooks being reprinted with vegetarian recipes. And then a lot of dairy restaurants in cities that were heavy with Jewish culture like New York City. Sarah, it was such a thrill and an honor to sit down with such a compatriot. Bravo to you and all the wonderful work you've done. And I hope you'll talk to us again on Louisiana Eats. Thank you. Sarah Lohman, author of Eight Flavors, the untold story of American cuisine. When we come back from a short break, we'll explore what American food really means in the 21st century with Gabrielle Langholz, author of America, the Cookbook. Stay tuned. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Cafe B, featuring contemporary Creole cuisine with an emphasis on fresh Gulf seafood served in a classic old Metairie setting. Lunch, dinner, Sunday brunch, and private events on Metairie Road. Do you have some Louisiana Eats on your mind? We'd like to hear about it, so we opened a phone line to take your calls. Leave us a message at 504-867-9128 or send us an email to louisianaeats at poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. My name is Gabrielle Langholtz and I'm the author of America the Cookbook a culinary road trip through the 50 states. Foodways can reveal a lot about identity. And here in America, deeply embedded within our identities are the stories of migration. When Gabrielle set out to write her tremendous cookbook, she quickly realized that the history of American food belongs to the immigrants that found their home here. So Gabrielle traveled the country in search of these stories, and she doesn't mince words when she talks about the arduous research process. Oh, my gosh. 
It was a monster assignment. Um, well, I had met Emily um, Takutis, the uh, executive editor at Biden's New York office. And Emily thought of me because she knew me professionally a little bit and that I had done one cookbook about farmers markets. And I had um, been the editor-in-chief for Edible Manhattan and Edible Brooklyn for 10 years. So at the, at the Edible magazines, I'm really celebrating place-based taste and thinking about the local foods movement and traditional foods in, in American communities. Um, but what she didn't know uh, was, as I like to say, I actually grew up in America. And I'm not kidding. I um, I had been to every state before Emily reached out to me, actually with the one exception of Maine. <laughs> so when I got this assignment, I immediately booked a week-long trip to Maine. What was your reach out to find these recipes? And how did you narrow them down? That was so much fun. Um, my original assignment was to do only 500 recipes. I mean, only, of course, is kind of silly because that's a huge number, but we ended up clocking in closer to 800. Um, so originally I set out to find about 10 recipes per state, and I was looking for the kind of quintessential iconic dishes that would represent every state. And I will tell you, Poppy Tooker, that in my very first meeting I said to her, I'm going to need to go way over 10 for California and Louisiana. Those were the two states that I was like, there's, there's no way I can begin to tell this culinary story with just 10 recipes. And trying to, I mean, what I really set out to do with this book is really look beyond the kinds of Americana dishes that we all always think of. So things like roast chicken, fried chicken, mashed potatoes. I mean, I love those things, and they are in the book, and they belong in the book. Um, but to really try to look past them to unusual re regional specialties, immigrant dishes. Ultimately, you know, the book says, what is American food? Ask that question, which is kind of the question, who is American? And we're a really big, diverse country, and we have a really big, diverse menu that reflects that. So we certainly are a nation of immigrants, and I'd like to know about some of the nations that were important culinary contributors for you. There's a dish called acida mm -hmm. that originates in South Sudan, yeah. and you found it in Omaha? Absolutely. There is there's a Sudanese refugee population in Nebraska, absolutely, and that's a dish made with millet flour. We also found some really interesting dishes with Sudanese greens with peanut sauce, and, you know, um, it's crazy, but with 750 recipes, we actually felt we were only scratching the surface. But we looked at everything from Middle Eastern foods around Detroit to... Um, Korean food in L.A. and New Jersey to um, Vietnamese food down where you are, where so many people had moved to work in the shrimping industry, um, you know, Peruvian food. I mean, there's America is called melting pot for good reason, or some people call it more of a tossed salad because we don't just kind of melt completely together and and become homogenous. Um, we we mix together but maintain some of our some of our background and own identity but you know poppy one thing that 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 i had never thought about before in terms of immigrant identity and immigrant foods in america was that so many of the dishes that we think of as really quintessential americana were brought here by immigrants over time i mean you look back literally chicken and pork and beef were all bought brought by the Spanish, <laughs> yeah. and, um, you know, the hamburger and the Frankfurter and beer are brought by the Germans, 
and um, people call something as American as apple pie, and apples, of course, are native to Afghanistan and brought here by European immigrants, and so with the, the butter and the wheat and the crust, um, or, or you know, you think about even the things that you find on the kids' menu today, like uh, spaghetti and meatballs and, and macaroni and cheese and pepperoni pizza, you know, brought here by Italian immigrants and really hardly known in the United States even as recently as 100 years ago. So when we talk today about going out for Korean food or Filipino food or Peruvian food, Ecuadorian food, I mean, those certainly are immigrant foods, and they are just the most recent in a long line of dishes that people have been bringing to America for a long time. And, you know, I love, I've got Native American foods in this book, too, and Certainly, corn is essential to the American diet still today, and tomatoes and hot peppers and uh, turkey and cranberries and salmon. Um, So there are certainly foods that were here in 1491 that are still pillars of the American diet, but the vast, vast majority of the ingredients and dishes that we eat today were brought here by immigrants over time. I mean, if for some reason America didn't exist one day, its food could be recreated from the pages of your book. To me, it was kind of like the joy of cooking for 21st century America. It really did feel like that sort of a standard that everybody would want on their bookshelf. Oh, Poppy, thank you so much. Well, that's just what we were going for. And um, America has um, a mixed reputation culinarily, certainly, around the world and here at home. And um, and I talk about this a little bit in the introduction, that for some people the phrase American cuisine is an oxymoron or can feel like a punchline. I mean, America earned a bad reputation for food that you buy through a car window um, or just add water. <laughs> and um, And I really wanted to come out with this book and say, that is such a small part of the story. I mean, that is part of the story, and that's, and that's real. Um, but there is so much true, deep regional cuisine that is alive and well. And, um, and this book is a love letter to that, and it means so much to me to hear you describe it that way. I'm very curious. You know, one of the things that I know you hold near and dear to your heart, as well as I do with our long history with slow food, Yep. Did you find any food traditions along the way that you thought perhaps were endangered that you're helping save with the book? I certainly hope so. Gosh, probably half the things in the book are regional specialties that um, that we could lose. Um, but for the most part, Poppy, I really see an enormous new appetite for them. And I think that's new and growing. I mean, when I was a kid, um, I think for, for most of the 20th century, people didn't think of American food as a cuisine to, as a cuisine, or you know, certainly as a cuisine to um, have in the setting of fine dining. But one of the things that I've really noticed is that there is a real growing appreciation and appetite for the ingredients and dishes that are foundational to regional American cuisine. And in fact, this is a thread that runs through many of the essays in the book. In the back of the book, we have um, an essay for each state by some of the greatest culinary minds in the country. And I was amazed by how many of them said a variation of the sentence, Scott Peacock's first sentence in his Alabama essay. He says, when I left Alabama, I was never going back. 
And there are so many chefs who talk about growing up and thinking of fill-in-the-blank state or America as a country as a place to just leave behind with a one-way ticket. And everyone's like, I was going to Tuscany, or I was going to Tokyo, or I was going to the French Culinary Institute, and I was going to learn to cook real food. And only in recent years, I think partly through the farmer's market movement, have people rediscovered something that's kind of been hidden in plain sight all this time. And now you'll see chefs like Sean Brock, you know, considered one of the very best chefs in the world, cooking new southern food, cooking the food that he grew up with in South Virginia with his grandmother doing like pickled watermelon rind and pimento cheese and things that would never have been on a tasting menu when I was growing up. Or you see books like Ronnie Lundy's book, Vittles, when the James Beard Award, or New Midwestern Table, when the James Beard Award a few years ago. So, so I do see this wonderful rediscovery and celebration and valuing now of American food in a way that I, I'm excited about and I see it growing. Well, it's a perfect time for your book. And if you were to look into a crystal ball, <laughs> what would you predict the future of American food Oh, to great be? question. Well, you know, I was on a panel at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home in Virginia, um, talking about American food, and, and someone in the audience asked this question. And Kevin West, um, who's my essayist for Tennessee, he had such a great answer. He said, kimchi tacos. <laughs> and I just love that answer. So, I, first of all, I love kimchi tacos. But I just love that answer because it's about evolution. It's about immigrants bringing their dishes and influencing one another and kind of having love children together. Um, or Ed Lee, who's my chef for Kentucky, he makes a dish that's collard greens with kimchi. And, you know, he grew up in Brooklyn. He's got Korean-American heritage. And nobody ever put kimchi in collards before, but they are delicious and they belong there. So in answer to your question, I, I think um, kimchi tacos are the future of American food. Gabrielle Langholz, author of America, the Cookbook. My name is Linda Myers. And I'm George Myers, and we're two 50-somethings that travel the world, eating, cooking, and playing. Linda and George Myers are Americans, Belt Chase natives, in fact. This long-married couple have pursued their culinary dreams right out of this country. They've combined their love of food and travel and completely recreated their lives. In retirement, the former schoolteacher and Air Force pilot abandoned America the Beautiful for some serious globetrotting. The couple now own cooking schools in Italy, Mexico, and Cuba. When Linda and George joined us in our studio to talk about their new careers, I have to admit, I was more than a little green with envy. Well, I am so jealous. 
I have just met two former New Orleanians who were doing exactly what I would like to do. <laughs> so first of all, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Y'all go way back here in New Orleans, don't you? We do. George and I are high school sweethearts. I was 16 and George was 17. And we fell in love and have been married for 32 years and have two wonderful children. And we love New Orleans still from the bottom of our hearts. Now, you all had a very conventional life for most of the life so far, huh? Yeah, so uh, I'm a retired Air Force pilot, and we've moved 12 times around the United States. And after that, we worked nine to five jobs, or sometimes I think for me it was four to ten at night jobs. And we lived in Washington, D.C., you know, doing the grind. We were all set up to move back to New Orleans after George had retired, and Katrina came. That changed the path of our life, and we ended up back in um, Washington, D.C., Virginia area, and we picked up that grind again. George got a job. I started teaching, and we just kept on moving. But the kids grew up. Then we became empty nesters, and everybody was gone, and that's when we really decided it was time to do something different. Give us your aha moment with, okay, we're going to change. We're going to change everything. Okay, so my aha moment would definitely have been coming home every day and just watching TV and living for that 12 hours of daylight on Saturday and never really getting to see George and never really getting to spend quality time with our kids and so forth. It was just like, this is not what it's about. It's really not. We need to start doing something more, start living. And it just, let's do it, George. Let's do it. Let's just travel the world. Let's give it all up and just travel. And he said, well, what happens if we lose our house? And my reply was quick, really quick. I just said, I'm not that attached to it. And the <laughs> next day I put in my resignation. How wonderful. Yes. How long did it take you before... You found the place and figured out the direction. Well, I was on a plane within maybe two weeks to Italy, and I didn't come home for about four months. I, I assume you were with her, huh, George? No, I was not. <laughs> what? Actually, uh -oh. I was still working because I said, this thing may not work out. <laughs> so I mean, we're going to do this, but I was scared. I'll be honest, I was scared. And people who say, man, you're brave. And I'll go, no, 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 you're never not going to be scared. In fact, that's the fun part of it is scaring yourself, I think. If we're not all <laughs> those scared. In fact, if you're not scared, you're not doing enough. So what were you doing away for four months? Well, George and Whitney, our daughter, had come with me, and we kind of set up. We rented a house in this little village. and What was the village? Monofalonica. It's a little hilltop village um, in the southern part of Tuscany. It's from the 13th century. Our house that we have there is 750 years old. I got a car and started getting to know things. And really, George, we I knew George was coming, uh, and he knew he was coming. We were just, you know, cleaning up some things. And I just got out and started meeting people and started going to places. And I just fell in love with the whole village and everything about it, and I knew that's where we were going to be for a long time. <laughs> How many people live in this little village? We have about 120 people that live in our village, and about, I would say, 75% are over the age of 80, and we have 12 people over the age of 100. 
Oh, so you're looking at some great longevity there, huh? We are. You're going to make old bones. Lots of olive oil and good tomatoes. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. You find Montefilonico, and you know that this is the spot. Now, how do you know there's going to be a cooking school there? Well, you don't. But just like we've lived all over the world, all over the United States, I should say, you know, people come to visit you just like they come to visit you in New Orleans. And for one day, you can take them everywhere. You might wear them out, but you know where to go. You know the restaurants to go to, and you go, don't order because I'm ordering for you. This is what you're going to get here. We're going over here. You're going to see this. You're going to see that. And that's what you start doing for people in Tuscany because they come to visit you. Then before long, you realize you don't know any of the people who are coming because they're friends of friends, and you go, hey, we might be on to something, and that's act, that's the way it happens. And how long ago was that? When did you officially start the cooking officially school Officially started about five, six years ago that we started bringing people who, as a business. Give me an example of a day at your cooking oh, wow. school. Give me your best day. Well, first of all, we get up, and George is making cappuccinos at the hotel for you. And then we're off to one of our kitchens right there in the village. We just walk along the cobblestone streets. And we get there, and we start making pasta. And the Nonas are the grandmothers of the village. This is who's teaching them how to roll pasta. All the grandmothers and all them who are not professionally trained teach. But then the music starts and the wine starts flowing and everybody's having a great time. We go in the kitchens and we have contests on different countries because we have people from all over the world who come to visit us in Tuscany. So we'll have Canada versus Australia and they'll be rolling or they'll be making a crostata and it's really a lot. And then we dance around. And of course, we have to bring New Orleans into our little village. So we second line all the way outside into the piazza and back into the restaurant before we have lunch. Then we give everybody a quick break, and then we're off to another village or a wonderful winery and to a gourmet dinner, and we get them home around 10, 30, 11 o'clock, and the next day we get to do it all over again. Oh, my goodness, that (laughs) sounds like fun. It is a lot of fun. Now, I understand the whole cook in Tuscany thing. Mm -hmm. That is sort of a no-brainer. But how in the world does cook in Tuscany become cook in Mexico and cook in Cuba? Well, that's really simple because when we got to Tuscany and we had so many people coming and we became friends with a lot of people, they'd say, what are you going to do next? Take us somewhere else. Take us somewhere else. We had been going to San Miguel. We loved it. And we said, okay, let's try it. And it just, we started there. The next time somebody said, you know, we can start going to Cuba. What do you think? And we were like, okay. So we booked a flight. We figured it all out. And here we are in Cuba. It's amazing what people will say, George, when you guys open up a cooking school in Pakistan, we're coming. We're like, okay, well, maybe not there, but it really is amazing. I mean, so, you know, we're in Mexico and in Cuba, and the people who come are the people who come to Tuscany. They're our friends, and they want to follow us. In fact, it's so great now that, you know, we travel. That's our our life is to travel that they now they invite us to go on their vacations with them. So we get invited. In fact, we're going to China in the fall, and then we're going to on a – a safari with uh, one of our friends from cooking schools, her 50th birthday. So she wants us to experience that with her. We got, and we also got invited. We're like double and triple booked all the time because we can't make all the trips that everybody's planning with us. Well, I, I think it must be because y'all are from New Orleans and 
We know how to have a good time, we and sure everybody do. wants to have fun with us. We sure do, and we love to bring a little bit of New Orleans with us everywhere we go. We bring king cakes to San Miguel when we do our cooking schools there. We just love to have fun, and this second life has definitely been fun for George and I. I mean, we really fell in love with each other again. We fell in love with our life again. We laugh. This morning, we were walking around the French Quarter. I mean, on a Monday morning. Who gets to do that? <laughs> Have you all turned into the poster children for retirement? Um, yes, I think we have. Yes, yes. <laughs> that was Bell Chase natives, Linda and George Myers. If you want to learn more about their travels and how you can join them, visit their website, cookeatplaytravel.com. How do you get those flaky layers in a pie crust? Stay tuned, and we'll solve that mystery when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Are you podcasting Louisiana Eats yet? If not, it's time to subscribe. Podcast listeners have access to full-length interviews, with chefs like Edward Lee, Donald Link, and Michael Galata, along with new material that's never hit the airwaves before. Just visit poppytooker.com to subscribe. And while you're there, check out our new videos by filmmakers Marion Gay and Jonathan Evans. Now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. How do you get those flaky layers in a pie crust? It's all about the fat, and it's all about the chill. First, make sure the fat that's going into the crust is very cold, whether it's butter or lard. Manipulate those pieces of fat into the flour quickly using your fingertips. Sprinkle small quantities of ice water on the dough until you can just form a ball. Then wrap it in plastic and chill for at least 20 or 30 minutes before rolling. That gives the gluten strands formed by working the dough time to relax, making for a more tender crust. When you roll out a good crust, you should be able to see the streaks of fat in it. When the pie crust bakes, those cold fat layers explode between the flour, and that's what makes a pie crust flaky. My cooking teacher, Madeline Kamen, always insisted women made better pies than men because their fingers are colder. I don't know about that, but Madeline's pie crust recipe. Now, actually, she's French, so that's tart crust to her. 
is simply the best ever. You'll find the recipe on our website, poppytooker.com. Now, let's hear more about pies from my friend Kate McDermott, the psychiatrist. Although obsessed with baking since she was a little girl, pie became a passion for Seattle's Kate McDermott in 2005. That's when she began a two-year exploration of pie crust. Since then, Kate's been a go-to authority on the craft of pie-making. Known as the pie-chiatrist, Kate shares her expertise in workshops, her books, and website. Kate joined us in the studio to help demystify the pie. There's nothing that is hard about pie. In fact, those words, easy as pie, they really do have some truth in them. I think the biggest thing is just to believe that you can do it, not to worry about a perfect outcome, because in those little places where you have a little tear here in the crust, where you have a little, um, it didn't look quite like the pictures in the book, you have beauty and perfection right there in that pie. And good taste, too, I imagine. And memories. <laughs> well, start us off from scratch. How do you make a pie? I'd love to tell you that. First thing I do is I want to make sure that all my ingredients are chilled as many as possible. So I am putting my flour in the freezer. I'm keeping my fats well chilled. My bowl comes out of the freezer too. Then I will, I have a very, very simple recipe. It's got four ingredients for the dough. There's flour, two and a half cups. There's salt, a half a teaspoon. There's the fats. I use leaf lard, eight tablespoons of that, and eight tablespoons of butter, and enough water to put it all together. Now, when I'm working with those fats and moving them into the flour, I'm working very, very quickly. I can do this either with my hands and just sort of smush that fat right into the flour until it looks like it's sort of coated with cracker crumbs, peas, almonds, and maybe a small walnut meat or pecan if you like that. Then I will uh, get the water in until it's mixed enough to hold together without being sticky. And when I then I pull it into a a ball that's about the softball size, you kind of feel you you know you're there if you can feel like you're going to pat a baby's bottom. <laughs> well, tell me, what is leaf lard? Leaf lard is the rendered fat from around the pig's kidneys. For generations, it is what pie makers have used for the flakiest crusts around. Where do you get leaf lard from? I have several places that I get it. I'm using so much leaf lard in my classes monthly. I go through 50 pounds of leaf lard in a month. Wow. Yeah, I'm teaching a lot. <laughs> so I get it from a place in Pennsylvania, Dietrich's Meats and Country Store, and you'll love where they're in, Crumbsville, Pennsylvania. <laughs> well, that's perfect for pie making. What do you do if the pie doesn't work out? Uh-huh. That's happened to every pie maker around. First thing, you don't worry about it. And then you get out your lasagna pan, and you turn that pie with its beautiful ingredients 
into the pan, move those pie ingredients around that's baked, and it turns into the best crumble you've ever had. That's a perfect solution. What do you do if your guests are gluten-free? Ah, yes. Gluten-free is a big thing now, and I myself try not to eat too much gluten. But uh, for those who can't eat it at all, you can make a gluten-free pie that's pretty darn good. Uh, I use seven different flours. And then I just go ahead and pretty much make my dough as usual. Uh, There's a couple little tricks to it. Instead of making my dough first and chilling it, and then making my filling and then rolling out, I put my filling together first, then immediately go on to making my gluten-free dough and construct the pie, and then chill it. Ah. What are those flours? I use uh, several different rice flours. I use potato starch, tapioca flour, or tapioca starch. Those are just a few of the ones that I use in there. Speaking of tapioca starch, this is something else that I really don't have any experience with. And you and I shopped for pie ingredients together, and I have to admit I was a little shocked when I saw the famous pie maker add a little red box of something that said instant on it really big to the shopping cart. What was that, Kate? Well, that was a pie maker's best friend that was quick cooking tapioca. When I have fillings, I call them the juicy fruit fillings. These would be rhubarb, pie cherries, berries, and frozen fruits. Those can get very, very wet inside of your pie. So I like to use quick cooking tapioca, which really sort of snugs things up. I don't want it standing up like a little soldier at the end, because I like to have a certain amount of ooze in my filling, but I don't want to have fruit soup. So I will put in uh, many times some flour, a third of a cup, a quarter cup of flour, and then follow that with anywhere between a half a teaspoon to a tablespoon and a half of quick cooking tapioca. Now, there is another secret that you'll need to know when you're using quick cooking tapioca, and that is you have to get the temperature high enough for the tapioca to do its work. So if you don't see enough bubbling at the end of your bake time, and I'm not talking about rapid bubble, I'm talking about some steady, even bubbling, then you can go ahead and kick your oven up for the last five minutes, maybe to 425, maybe to 440, until you see that, and then you're good to go. Some pies are sort of mounded, and some pies are flat. What's the deal with that? There are two fruits that I will mound a pie with. That will be apple and pear, and those I just mound something fierce. It's not unusual for me to have a six and a half inch tall apple pie or pear pie. They will slump down in the cooking and their their juice stays in pretty well if you've got enough thickener in there. But with those juicy fruit pies, I like to have them a little flatter. I would like to have them about a half an inch below the rim so we don't have any disasters. Now, I have to ask you, what's your favorite pie? Well, my favorite pie is always the one that I'm making. But <laughs> if I if I had 
only one last pie to make. It would be a peach pie. I think that there's nothing nothing finer than a good peach pie. And I love the Cal Red or O. Henry peaches that Frog Hollow Farms grows in California. There's nothing like those peaches. Well, someday I'm going to have to introduce you to a Louisiana Rustin peach. And then we might change your mind just I'm, a little I'm ready. Bit. Anytime. Do you have a least favorite? Yes. What's that? I call it the clean the oven pie. That's the one that I think we've all had experience with at some time or the other where you put that filling up too high in the pie and it spills over into your oven. And then you have the smoke alarm going off and the oven is just, you don't want one of those. We've all had them. Well, Kate, thank you so much for bringing all this pie-making knowledge into the studio here at Louisiana Eats. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Poppy, and be happy and make pie. Renowned pie maker, Kate McDermott. If you're looking for more pie wisdom from the Piecaiatrist, check out Kate's James Beard-nominated book, The Art of the Pie. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you missed an episode of Louisiana Eats? Hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. If you're not podcasting yet, it's time to subscribe. We've launched an exclusive podcast series, Louisiana Eats Quick Bites, made up of sneak previews of material that hasn't hit the airwaves yet and full-length interviews never heard on the show before. Visit our podcast page at poppytooker.com so you won't miss a single serving of our broadcast or our podcast. And give us a ring on our new committed phone line. 504-867-9128. We'd love to hear from you. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, Camellia Beans, and Rouse's Markets. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau. And from Tableau. Brunch and dinner daily with outdoor balcony dining overlooking Jackson Square. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to producers Joe Schreiner, Sarah Holtz, and Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Don't forget to find our recipes and see what we're up to at poppytooker.com. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 